But we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 21 and 22 in its entirety today. And the title is A Holy, Distinct Life. What does it mean to live a life that is holy and distinctive in the world today? As I wrestled with this sermon and looked at the text and really tried to understand what it is that God is doing through this, one of the things I kept coming back to is just the early church in the confines of the Roman Empire. There's a great book by Larry Hurtado. He has since passed away, but he wrote this book called Destroyer of the Gods in 2016. And in this, uh, his argument, what he was doing as a researcher, was trying to figure out why an increasing number of people were converting to Christianity in the Roman Empire. You see, he asked this question because as you look back at history, Christianity was actually the most persecuted of all religions within the Roman Empire. In fact, beyond just the general persecution that you would face as a believer, there was a significant social cost to following Jesus within the Roman Empire. That you were ostracized from the entire social network when you were discovered to be a Christian. And so Larry Hurtado looks at this and asks, well, why? Why did Christianity grow rapidly in the Roman Empire? Why did we go from the time of Jesus walking to earth to 400 years later, Christianity was the religion of the Roman Empire? What happened? How did this occur? And as he began to research this, looking back not only at the scriptures but historical evidence, he began to see something. He began to understand a principle that I think is significant for us today. I won't go into the full width and breadth of his argument, but to paraphrase what he has said, his research showed that Christians, despite the persecution, despite the extensive social issues they would face for being faithful followers of Christ, he found that they lived as a distinct, holy people, separate from those around them. They lived in such a way that the people of the Roman Empire could look upon them and go, well, they're different. Despite the risks, despite the difficulties of following Christ in that era, Christianity rapidly grew. That it was the fastest growing religion in the Roman Empire despite the cost. Now, what does that have to do with Leviticus chapter 21 and 22, right? You see, here in these two chapters, we see God laying out what a holy, distinct life looks like for the Christian believer. What does it look like to be a holy follower of Christ? What does it look like to live in such a way that the world looks upon you and goes, this person must be a Christ follower because they are completely different than anyone else I've met. They are living in such a way that they have to be following someone who's greater than he and I. And so as we look at this passage today, I think we're going to see principles that are still applicable to us today in how do we live as Christ followers. We're also going to see some explicit instruction on things that we're to do and not to do from the Scriptures that are still applicable to us today. Now, I will confess that uh, we are reading two chapters, and so I won't try to read through all 40-plus verses with you right here in this moment. We'll uh, read as we go, if that's okay. So the first section we're going to look at is chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. You'll see the point on the screen and the text. Our first point is that we're to avoid religious static. Let me read these first six verses for you. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband. For, he, for her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their bodies. They shall be holy to their God, and I profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. So this first point is that we, to be a holy, distinctive people, to live a holy, distinctive life, must avoid religious static. Now, I've chosen that word static, and you might think that's an odd usage of it. But as I was looking at this passage and trying to understand what it is that God is making clear to his people, both in this time and now, what I kept coming back to is this idea of static. And you'll understand where we're going with me with, as we get into this. If you've been driving in a car, we all drive, right? We're in vehicles. And if you've got your radio on, you may notice as you're driving through certain areas, what starts to come through the radio? You pick up a little static sometimes. I was driving from Nashville to Charleston a few weeks ago, had the radio on, just something else to listen to. And I noticed as I was driving through different areas on that trip on 40 and then down to 26, the radio station I was listening to would start to pick up static. It would start getting to the point where I couldn't hear anything but the static sound. And so what did I do? Well, I hit search to get to the next day. And I could listen to something there for a few minutes until it started to get staticky again. You see, when I say that we are to avoid religious static, what we are to do is to avoid this idea that we are just going to assimilate different faiths, that we're going to embrace other faiths and ideas, that we're to be clear and distinctive. We're not to get fuzzy or staticky in our ideas of what Christianity looks like. There's a story from a few years ago of a church in the Netherlands, and it's a Roman Catholic church, and their local bishop decided the best way for their church to be a distinctive Christian community, to embrace lostness and seek after those people who are far from God, is to start to pray towards Allah. Because in his mind, what he told his congregations was that we are worshiping the same God. Therefore, we can pray to the same God. You see, that is a very static-filled radio station because that's a lie. There is one God, there is one way, one path to eternity, and that is through Jesus. It's very clear through the scriptures as we study this. But the truth is, is that we live in a culture and a world today that says you must embrace everyone or you're an intolerant bigot. You must embrace everyone and say all beliefs are equal and acceptable or you are the one who's wrong. As we look at this passage, you, you, you hear those ideas and you go, well, what, what does that mean here? How is that applicable here? Well, as we see here, God's primary concern in this section is this clear worship of Him. And you have to remember that the Israelites, just like us, are surrounded by pagan worshipers. We're surrounded by people who do not know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and worship something, but it is not Jesus. Just like the Israelites, that's the world we live in. And the people of Israel is this holy, distinctive people, this holy nation, 
They are surrounded by pagan worshipers who worship false gods. Now the most common gods that are worshipped in the area that surrounds the Israelite people are Moloch and Baal. We see in the scriptures actually that over the years that the people of Israel flirt with worship of Moloch and Baal. Just a few short chapters away in Judges, we find them worshiping Baal. And there's a whole series of consequences they face from that. But as we look at the people of Israel, we look at the cultural situation they're in. Don't we find ourselves in the exact same boat today? Are we not surrounded by people that would proclaim this truth that we should worship the same God because after all, we're all going to the same place. We're called to be tolerant and accepting of other religions. And what is meant by this is ultimately not that we should have this human dignity and respect of one another, but rather that we have people who are crying out to us to say that we should embrace these faiths alongside of our own. You see, the verses right here in chapter 21, God is addressing that very issue. You see, we as sinful humans, we are tempted to bring things into the worship of God that do not belong there. We are tempted to bring things into the worship of God that do not belong there. And God is addressing this issue by providing clear boundaries for how His people should live. He's making it very straightforward and simple for His people to know how to worship and who it is that they worship. We have to remember that the point of this entire book of Leviticus is that God is holy, therefore His people should be holy. And one reality of being a holy people means that we are going to live differently than those people who are not holy. I'll say that again for everyone in the back, right? If we're going to be a holy people, that means we live differently than unholy people. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? We see God give these explicit instructions to His priests and to the people of Israel that He says this, Do not associate with the dead here. Now, why does He say that? You know, it seems to fly in the face of what we understand about our rites of funerals and rituals and all these things. We have to recognize that God is not insensitive to His people's suffering here. He's not banning grief or anything like that. He's not saying that you cannot have a funeral service. He's not saying any of those things. But rather, He's calling our attention to how the people around Israel worship. You might be familiar with this if you've studied world history, but in the Far East, uh, there is a very popular style of worship called ancestor worship. Uh, if you've studied this, if you've seen this throughout history, it is where that you will literally create a shrine to your family and present offerings to your ancestors to encourage them to guide your path, uh, to ask them to protect you, to ask them to intercede on your behalf before whatever God you may worship. Now, most commonly in this area that the people of Israel are in, this is still one of the habits of worship. Uh, but the, rather than create a typical shrine like you might see in a home or something, they create an entire burial ground where the, your bodies of your ancestors are buried. And these burial grounds are ran and maintained by cults of people that worship the dead. 
In fact, their worship of the dead goes so far that rather than just taking the body after the funeral service and then burying it, they keep it out and try to keep the spirit in the body alive by having feast, by providing food and drink, by having this entire party and living this lie that they can maintain some measure of life in this body. It's a very common form of ancestor worship we see here. That we still see elements of this today within our world. That there are places in the world where they still worship in this way. You see, the reality here is that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. The dead who are in Christ, that is, they are believers, are now living with Him. And God is drawing a line in the sand as He has done so frequently through the book of Leviticus to make it clear that my people, my holy, distinctive, righteous people will not live like the rest of the world. They will not worship like the rest of the world. And so He draws this line in the sand saying, this is one way that you will be different from the rest of the world. Now, he's not content to just end with a thought there. Remember, he's speaking to the priest and the people of Israel, and he's addressing some, some concerns, some things that he wants to make sure that we avoid. So one, if we're to avoid religious static, that is bringing in these things that would make our faith fuzzy or different, we're also to avoid moral impurity. We're to avoid moral impurity. Look with me at verse 7. They, speaking of the priests shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes his father. She shall be burned with fire." The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and for whom who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He shall not go in to any dead bodies or make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord." And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute, these shall not, he shall not marry. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may, offer, may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in the sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat of the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, for he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. Now, 
God is continuing His training on how we're to live as a holy people, separate from the world. And verses 10 through 12 explain why. That these are people, specifically as He's talking to the priests and His holy people, that He has purified and consecrated. We know on this side of the new covenant, that is Jesus coming, that our purification, our consecration required death. It's always required death, but what we were required to have to be purified, to be made holy, is that God himself would die in our place. That for us to come in and offer worship that is pleasing to God, someone had to die for us. That someone's name is Jesus. And we have to recognize that that was a costly transaction. That there was no way we could pay this debt of sin and shame, yet Jesus took the cross on our behalf. That it costs him his very son so that he would call us his adopted children. That purification, that restoration, it was not done lightly. It was not done cheaply. It was a very costly reconciliation. You see, this is why God is harping on these things so frequently with such passion and specification. He is saying that if you are a wholly distinctive people, you need to recognize that grace is not cheap. Grace is not cheap. And if you're going to live a life that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called, that is, that you have been set apart for the Most High God of the universe, it means you need to be very careful with how you live and how you worship. Because every sin, every shame that you and I have committed caused Jesus to hang upon the cross for another moment. The weight of the sins of the universe rested upon Him so that He may bear those sins so that you and I could have righteousness. You see, the truth is, as we look at these verses, that God has set His people apart for worship. He has set His people apart to worship Him. And to associate with the sinfulness of the surrounding world, that would simply profane His worship. That would simply mean that what we are bringing to the table is nothing but sin and shame. We would defile His worship if we are not offering ourselves as a pure and holy people. And so, He addresses this idea of moral purity within the priest and His people. That he addresses this because he is deeply concerned about how we live. Now, I've got to be clear that as we look at this, um, there are some verses in here that on the surface seem to be a bit contrary to God's character. I know that there are some challenging things that were said in here that we need to lean in and listen together. Simply put, I believe that as we look at this, that these verses are not against God's character. But we do have to understand the people of Israel and the people that surround them to get the understanding here, to re understand the reasoning behind this. So really, I want to encourage, if you've heard something in there that you say, I don't believe that, I don't affirm that, let's just lean in, let's put those things aside, and let's see what the Word of God would say here. So the first thing that he addresses here is that he's talking about marriage and, and the priest. He's talking about that, which, that person, those people, that will go forth and offer these holy offerings on behalf of the people before the Lord. 
We see in verses 7 through 9 and in verses 13 through 15 that he addresses the priest and his marriage specifically. Now his primary qualification here as he's addressing this marriage is that the priest would marry a virgin woman of his people, that is of the people of Israel. And then he specifically states that as we look at this, that divorced women, prostitutes, etc. are not to marry a priest here. Now why? Why is he concerned about this? Well, first, let me make very clear that he is not saying anything about the dignity and value of women who have been in these situations. That's not what he is saying at all. We see in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, that God makes allowances for divorce in times of adultery and other things that would be against the covenant of marriage. That we see very clearly that God has a heart for those that are in difficult situations. We recognize that, but he's laying something out for us we need to understand. We have to remember everything that God is saying here in Leviticus is directed to his people at that specific moment. He's explaining these things here to separate the people of Israel from the world around them. You see, one of the ways that the world around them worshipped was through sex. That The truth is that it's not very different today if we're honest with one another. But one of the things that we see specifically through the surrounding people is that ritual worship to their false gods, gods like Moloch and Baal and so many others, would include sex parties and other things that are just too coarse to speak of here in this company. The reality is that God is drawing a very distinctive line in the sand around His people and saying, if you are going to be my people, you need to live in a certain way to honor the holy sacrifices that I've made for you. That what we see here is that he's saying that you are my people and you're going to remain in this circle. Doesn't mean you don't go out and interact with people. But what it does mean is that your boundaries, your expectations, your behaviors are in here. In line with what I'm telling you. Now we recognize here that he's not saying that these women who have experienced these situations are impure. By no means is that the issue. He's not concerned about that. The issue specifically he's addressing here is that he does not want to allow for confusion and worship habits by the people of Israel or for those around them. God is being very clear that for those who are surrounding them, hey, I worship a holy God. And I worship in a way that is different than you. I worship in a way that is clear and distinct that my God expects A, B, and C. That is very different than your God. You see, God wants His people to not only be holy, but He desires for the world to see that they are holy. It's not enough that you and I are holy in our private lives. We must be holy in our public lives as well. Now, as as we look at this, you're, you're asking some questions as we continue into these verses, because the second half of this section, he begins to talk about uh, handicaps and the priest. And I want to be clear here as we look at verses 16 through 24. He's speaking about the physical capabilities of the priest. And he says expressly that certain blemishes or handicaps as we would see some of these instances would not allow man to offer sacrifices. We understand that these words he's using for blemishes as if you're speaking of the priests would refer to physical handicaps. Now why? Why is God concerned about this? You see, again, he's concerned about a reflection of his holiness to his holy people in an unholy world. Why is this important? 
Well, at this point, you've probably picked up that the people surrounding Israel are not the nicest, kindest people. They have some things they're trying to figure out. And some of the ancient worship habits that we would see out of the people that were around Israel would include physical self-harm. These would range from things like cutting themselves as a part of ritual worship to even severing body parts as a part of worship. I want to be very gentle here in how we're talking about these things, but suffice it to say that the ways that they worshipped using sex and the body and all of these things are not in line with God and His creation. And God is again drawing a line in the sand. You hear me say that every single week. But I want you to understand this, is that God is saying to us, to you and I, as believers, that if we're going to follow Christ, there are things that we are going to do and there are things that we will stay far away from. But he's drawing a line in the sand that he's making clear that what my worship consists of is this. That it's not that, but it's this. It is pure, it is holy, it is righteous. Now, I want to be very clear as we look at this that it is important to note that God is not saying that people with handicaps or disabilities are inferior. We see in chapter 19 that he makes provision uh, for the protection of those who are deaf and blind. He expressly states that they are to be protected and cared for in Leviticus 19. We see in the New Testament that throughout the New Testament that Jesus is sought out by the families of the handicapped and those that are suffering from physical ailments. They flock to Jesus. You see, the reality is that as we look at this, there is this connotation through Scripture that God cares for those who are physically limited. He cares and protects those people. We also need to be very clear that God is not telling these men that they can't serve as priests either. He is simply stating that they cannot offer sacrifices, but they can fully serve the Lord and His people. Why? Again, he's drawing that line in the sand of saying, this is how some worship, this is how my people worship. And he is fully embracing the dignity of men and women who would have handicaps, who would suffer from physical ailments, and he is in no way saying they are lesser or inferior. He is simply saying, there is a way you're going to serve and it is looking, it's going to look different. And anyone who suffers from a physical ailment, whether it's a broken foot, a broken leg, or other things that are going, you recognize that at times you serve the Lord differently, correct? But you still serve the Lord. Now, as we've gone through 21, it's this entire section of things we should avoid. Of God saying very clearly, you are my people, so you will not do these things. You will be a distinctive holy people that is living in a certain way that the world can look at and go, that's different. Now in chapter 22, he turns the corner just a little bit. And he begins to talk about what we're to offer him. He begins to talk about what we're to offer the Lord our God. You see, beginning in chapter 22, we see that we're to offer holy lives. That this is a part of our offering and worship. We offer holy lives. Look with me at chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. 
Say to them, if any one of your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanliness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with a dead or with a man who has had a mission of semen, and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanliness, whatever his uncleanliness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things until he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterwards he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn from beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it, and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or a hired servant shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of the food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced or has no child and returns to her father's, father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no lay person shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause with them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. We are called to offer holy lives. Here we see this transition a bit from avoiding things to going into what we should do, how we're to live. And in these verses, God is commanding His priests and His people to offer holy service, holy lives to Him. Yes, it does have some reminiscent statements of what to avoid, but we're getting a paraphrased version of the purity laws from Leviticus chapter 11 through 15. If you remember that entire section of Scripture we looked at, that is the purity section of this passage where God is telling us, you are going to live like this. And simply put, God is addressing the weight that is on the priest and his people. You see, our lives should be characterized by faithful, holy works before the Lord. You see, we live in holy service to God and we bear a special burden of responsibility before him. See, God is commanding the priest not to come near the offering in a state of uncleanliness. He's saying there are certain things that would make you unclean. We've gone through that. And he says you should avoid these things, but if you encounter these things, there's a way towards restoration. There is a way we must do things. He provides this way of restoration by bathing oneself in water and waiting till evening to enter back into the camp. Now, while this is directed to priests specifically, this is also directed to God's people as well. You see, you and I are to take the burden of worshiping God seriously. We are to take the burden of serving God seriously. Six times in that section of Scripture, six times He declares, I am the Lord. 
He's making it very clear that He has authority to command these things. He's making it very clear that He has the power to command these things. And so you and I have a responsibility to live in such a way that provides a holy offering before the Lord. You know, just this past Saturday, you know, yesterday, you know, we gathered for brotherhood at 8 a.m. and we spent some time uh, enjoying food and each other's company, but we began to study the scriptures. And one of the passages that we looked at that we frankly spent our entire time talking about was John chapter 4, verse 23. This won't be on the screen. I just want to read this to you and let you hear these words. This is, these are the words of Jesus to the woman at a well in Samaria. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. You see, Jesus understood that as He said these words that He's referring to two different instances in church history. He's one referring to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., He sees that's coming because he is God and he's telling the Jewish people, this temple that you worship in, you will no longer worship here. You'll worship in spirit and truth separate from this holy place. But he also tells us something that he's saying that God is seeking true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. That is, he is seeking people who take this idea of living wholly distinct lives and he is looking for them. You see, God is concerned about the heart of the worshiper here. And one of the things that we recognize is that, indeed, if we are able to wrestle and control and see our hearts and minds be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the gospel of Jesus Christ, our lives, our actions will be characterized by holiness. Our lives will be characterized by holiness if, indeed, our hearts and minds are transformed by the power of the gospel. Yet here's the truth that we see within the American church, within our own lives, and you and I are just tempted to do this because we live in comfort and ease. We tend to seek after anything but God in our worship. We seek after our preferences. I hope they sing an extra hymn or two. I hope they have some drums on stage. We seek after our own desires. I hope Walter doesn't go till 1230 because the line gets long at Golden Corral after that. I hope that we're out of here on time because I've got lunch plans. Some of you are even thinking of what you're going to get for lunch and you're not even taking notes. Here's the truth of this in our lives today. Is that you and I live holy lives when it's easy for us. When it's comfortable for us. Yet, the scriptures here make it clear that if we're going to live wholly distinctive lives, that requires a 24-7 focus on the God of the universe. That requires us to live a life of difficulty and hardship sometimes. That requires us to recognize that God is seeking after people who are worshiping Him in spirit and truth. And what that means is they are fully committed to Him. And so I would ask you just as a moment of reflection, is your life a holy life? 
Are you offering a life that is full of holiness and righteousness that has been provided by God Himself? Or is your life full of sin and shame and you want to show up to keep up appearances? So my question for you is, are you offering a holy life or are you offering false worship? Because the scriptures here will make it clear that what we are to offer is indeed a holy life. One that is built on the promise that Jesus Christ can forgive each and every sin. Now it's not enough that we offer our holy lives, but there must be this holy sacrifice that is offered. And that's the final section we'll look at here. See, verses 17 through 30 address acceptable offerings, and they read, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel, of the sojourners in Israel, presents a burnt offering as his offering, for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish, of the bulls or the sheep or the goats." You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. Since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother. And on the eighth day it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep or her young, and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until the morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. You see, as God goes through this acceptable offering, He's talking about how we are to worship Him. And he's really just addressing this idea that as we look at acceptable offerings, what is good and holy and pleasing before the Lord is that God desires the best that can be provided. He desires the best that is, can be provided. You notice as he says that without blemish is what he's looking for in these animals. And I hope you've noticed the contrast of how he speaks about the animals and the blemishes of people. The people who have blemishes have dignity and are still able to serve the Lord. The sacrifices that have blemishes are useless. They're not worthy of entering in His presence. You see, God is calling for the perfect earthly sacrifice from His people. For His people. You see, though these animals are not perfect in image, they are, they, they are perhaps perfect in image, they are not perfect in sacrifice. 
You see, one of the reasons we recognize that is we know that throughout the sacrificial system, that the Jewish people had to make offerings day after day. They had to continually make offerings before the Lord to be found righteous, to be found forgiven of sin, to be found holy and pure. Day after day, they had to make offerings. Now, we recognize that reality and we ask, what indeed is an acceptable offering? If we look at this and we say that that offering only works for this moment and I need to offer something again tomorrow, then I'm up the creek without a paddle. What do I have that is pleasing before the Lord? What do I have that can make a difference before a holy and righteous God? If I'm corrupted by sin, what can I offer that is pleasing before Him? Well, you and I can offer nothing. You see, we are sinful people, born of sin, who live in sin, who are condemned by our sin. And the way we get to offer holy lives, the way we get to offer holy sacrifice, is by God Himself interjecting Himself into our lives. That is that you and I are sinful people, and to pay for the debt of our sin and shame, someone had to cover it for us. It was too great, too big for us to pull anything into it. And Jesus steps into the story. Jesus comes in being fully man and fully God. Living a perfect life that you and I wish we could live. He goes to the cross, an innocent man, having not sinned, having fulfilled the entirety of the law perfectly. And he bears the weight of our sin and shame once and for all. That the sin and shame of all humanity who would repent and believe in Jesus Christ has been paid for through eternity. How do we know that? Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 14 tells us, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's something in there that I want you to make sure you catch. You see, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for all sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. You see, there's some significance in there. And particularly, it's the one that He offers for all time a single sacrifice. His body bore the wrath that God would pour out upon sin and shame. He carries that debt for us. And then we see in this passage that he sits down at the right hand of the Father. You see, students of ancient rhetoric would recognize that. That's called a mic drop in modern culture. He sat down and is declaring, it is finished. Never again will you need to offer sacrifice. Never again will you be found unrighteous and unclean if indeed you've received this final sacrifice of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Never again will someone have to take your place upon a cross because you have been made clean for all eternity. It 
is finished. It is those words that Jesus proclaimed upon the cross as he gave his life up for you and I. It is finished. You see, the way that you and I are able to offer holy lives and holy sacrifice before the Lord is by receiving the one thing that has been offered to you and I, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. It is only by the shed blood of Jesus that He would take our weight of sin and shame upon the cross and give us righteousness. And this righteousness is given to us when we cry out to God Himself and say, Father, forgive me of the sins that I've committed and give me the righteousness of Christ. You see, it's that's righteousness that is available any time, any day, any place. It's that same righteousness that is being offered to you and I today. And so today, in the next few minutes, we'll have an opportunity to go to the Lord Himself and cry out for that righteousness. We'll have a time of silent prayer where I'll be quiet and it'll be you and the Lord speaking together. After a few minutes... I'll begin to pray for us and we'll pray that God would move in our lives today. Our worship team will lead us in a time of worship, crying out that we surrender all to the God of the universe. And we'll be sent out as missionaries into a lost and dying world. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come before you as people who are humbled by the cross. The recognition that the extent of our sin and shame required someone to die in our place. The recognition that you were fully willing to pay the price for our sin. The knowledge that this is available for all who would repent and believe should we trust in you, Father. Lord, as we wrestle with what we do from looking at this passage and how we're to live, what it means to be a holy, distinctive people, how we should live a holy, distinctive life, there is simply but one step that every man, woman, and child here needs to take. And that single step is crying out to you, Father, for forgiveness. Of looking to the heavens and crying out to the God on the throne. Father, we cry out for Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has sat down because it is finished. Our sin and shame is forgiven. That we are a new creation in Christ. 
that we are redeemed holy people. But that only begins when we cry out to God, forgive me of my sin, Lord. I believe. So, Lord, we ask that that would be the cry of our hearts today. That as we sing these words, I surrender all, that these wouldn't be empty words, but they would be covenant promises before the Lord. That, Father, I give it all up for you. My sin, my shame, my unrighteousness, I give it all away. And I receive your goodness, your grace, the righteousness of Christ. So, Father, would you allow the Spirit to pour out its power upon us? Allow us to see, hear, and respond to the goodness of the name of Jesus that still has power to save. Father, may we hear these words and sing them in confidence and assurance that as we surrender all, as we take up our cross and die, they were giving up the world to gain our lives. Father, we're thankful for you. And we pray these things in the finished work of Christ. Amen.